Hey listeners, this episode is sponsored by Frank's Hot Dogs and Beer. It's the late 80s, so they're not going to card you. Just have your folks drop you off at a movie and then sneak back through the underpass. You might have to go through that field full of burn hazel, but you should be fine. At Frank's, you're encouraged to risk it all for an underage brewskin, and later, should you be so lucky, some heavy petting in the back of a classic car inside an abandoned parking structure. Frank's Hot Dogs and Beer, where all your trashy daydreams come true. Uh, we got something there okay well maybe we'll we'll have to buy your mom's life rights speaking <laughs> of which before we get into this because um i think we need to have a segment on the show where matt asked tanner to figure out how to get the life the or the film rights to x because i feel like i'm always like that's, manically that's a good idea so we have the red bow by george saunders i've emailed the his agent twice still nothing <laughs> i think i probably just have to email like a bunch more right it's probably really busy <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Yeah. But I'm just so shocked by it cuz I'm like here's business. Tell me how much this costs. You know what I mean? It's they've maybe maybe she can sense that I probably don't have deep pockets, but let me tell you just let me know if it's for sale. Secondly, Lost Worlds of 2001, Arthur C. Clarke, who has the film rights to that bad boy. And then the third one is now Tanner, I'm really enjoying All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers by Larry McMurdy. That's awesome. Has and that been adapted? No, and it doesn't even have its own Wikipedia page, which makes me feel like it's completely fallen through the cracks. Obviously, this interview I watched with Tarantino, he talks about it's like his favorite book. But I think Larry McMurdy, The Last Picture Show, and then he also co-wrote the script for um, Brokeback Mountain. And like he, uh, I think his Westerns have all the attention, and this doesn't have any attention. Right. Well, Terms of Endearment won a bunch of Oscars, and that's not a Western, but I think like I know. I that's really funny because yeah, I heard it discussed on um, this TV podcast I listened to, The Watch. They had they did like a. I didn't listen to any of these ones because I haven't read the book, but like in COVID, they did a quote unquote summer of Dove where they, where they read <laughs> uh, read Lonesome Dove like I don't know a couple chapters at a time and did it like you know uh, mm-hmm. per episode. But they talked. I mean, they're like one of them's a TV writer, like it makes sense. But they talked about that book as well. But I hadn't heard about. I was like, he has books about a writer. Like I thought this was the Western guy who also wrote like one, you know, in terms of endearment, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so it's really you I think you would like it. It's really it's really interesting because it's like it just hits you in these weird ways. I'm like 100 pages in and it's like it's like you don't know what you're it's like it just it's very it just changes very quickly a couple of times and some great sentences like you're wondering you're like okay this this the main character is like kind of a piece of shit you think at the beginning and you're like this this guy is going you're going to watch him like hit, implode his own life. And then he's like, and then all of a sudden you like, he'll have like, he'll be on the outside of some situation. You'll feel really bad for him, like genuinely. Mm. And then it changes again. And then it's like, you can't help but to be like, just along for this ride, I feel like. And you just, it just, it's all of a sudden just these sharp, incisive sentences where you're like, like he's, he has this wife that he, the, the book starts with him basically taking this girl away from this crazy professor who's like in love with her. And it's so funny. He like, there's a, I literally laughed out loud. The professors whose English is like yelling at him. He's like that not to steal her away. And he's like, she, 
I don't think she loves you. And he, and then this professor yells another fact that doesn't change anything. <laughs> Something like that. It's like, anyway, and then it's the two of them kind of on the uh, back in Houston. And then she, he kind of, his. I'm going way too far into it, but anyway, she just kind of freezes him out then. And he's like, you're like, Oh my God. Like, it just feels so heart wrenching, even though he's like not necessarily good to her or a good fit for her. And they started off the, on the wrong foot. But like he um, she gets pregnant and then she just like wants nothing to do with him. And she has this line that's just like um, it turns out that now they're in San Francisco and she's having this affair. I'm, I'm jumping ahead and ruining the book. But um, uh, she, he's like, what's going on? Like, why? And she was like, and, he, and she was like, there doesn't need to be a why. And it was kind of like the I've been there before where it's like, for whatever reason, it's, something is over and you just yeah, don't know why. That's true. Um, I don't uh, know. That sounds great. I mean, he's dead. Maybe we can somehow, maybe that makes it more difficult or less. Okay. Step one, friend one of his kids on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Little Bobby McMurtry. I don't think he has children. Oh, bummer. Okay. Well, the, um, if you're coming to us now because I've timestamped the episode, um, we are talking today about what Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? by Joyce Carol Oates, which was adapted into the film Smooth Talk, directed by Joyce. What was what's her last name, Tanner? Chopra. Chopra, not Deepak Chopra, but Joyce Chopra. Correct. Um, no, relation. no relation. I assume. Okay, so her, how do we want to start on this? Kind of the way I went about it, Tanner um was i looked at um i think we actually went about it separate way so you were in charge of of joyce two joyce chopra i was in charge of choice joyce one <laughs> um carol oates and i kind of looked at her looked at her life i kind of distilled some of her writing lessons and then i did a deeper dive on the short story and then i read the article it was based off of it sounds like you reread the story and looked at the article as well yeah, yeah. I mean, we could start talking about the article and the real story if we want, or 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 with you know Joyce Carol Oates generally. Not a ton of, uh, unfortunately, seems like a fascinating person. Not a ton of relevant biography on Joyce Chopra as her career wasn't. I mean, it's long lived, but didn't didn't quite maintain um, the level of smooth talk. Um, so I think there's probably a lot more on Joyce number one. Sorry to make you number two, Joyce Chopra, but <laughs> them's the breaks. Okay, hold on one sec. Remove from people need to stop. Okay, I people were texting me and it was making my thing ding. Um, okay, well I, let's go into a little bit of Joyce Carol Oates because I think she her life is and um she's a fat she's like um to me it was a little bit this is g- goofy to say I guess but do you remember in the doll episode where I've I've gotten it wrong where I said he em he thinks em Forrester was was boring but it's actually cs Forrester. Uh huh. Um. I kind of feel similar. Like she's a little bit like uh, so actually so good at writing has a very straightforward. She like a path, you know, um, and it's just always working and always writing. And she's like so prolific, like one of the most prolific. I swear to God, I just took <laughs> I just took this off my dog. You got a thing, dang. Uh, how do I get rid of this? It's so annoying. Um, OK, I'll figure it out as it comes. But anyway, um. 
now I'm derailed. No, she was just so like her life is so writing focused, and I'm sure yeah. there's tons of seedier details. And I found there was there's totally layers to her, and I found out some things I thought were really interesting. I feel like it all it's pretty A to B. Um, so well, let, real quick, ahead. can I tell you? I I she's one of those authors where I'm like, oh, she's a great writer. Then I like realize like, oh, I've never read anything by her. I don't think mm-hmm. until now. Um, <laughs> funny enough, the only she's very active on Twitter and like says something that is like you can't cancel Joyce Carol Oates, but is like causes a controversy like once a month. That's always like hilariously weird for an old person to be tweeting. Um, <laughs> and I'm, so I always see her as this like esteemed author who's like, you know, like you said, like life of the writer who will tweet something like, well, I'm like maybe something like I know about Jewish people because I'm married to one like that, like that kind of everyone who's married to a Jewish man knows like, like that kind of stuff <laughs> where it's just like, this is so weird. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you you can't believe that. Uh, and I think um, once she posted last bit on this, I think she posted a very gross photo of her foot. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, are you yes? Gonna- <laughs> this article title: All we need Joyce Carlos tweets graphic foot picture. <laughs> Okay, that's why I really appreciate her, though, because I think we should start there, actually, then kind of work backwards. She's totally like doesn't give an F in like a great way. And like, I feel Definitely. like she's um, and we associate that with like some grizzled man who's like gone into a wave of controversy and is like F cancel culture. I feel like she's totally like taboos are the most interesting part of like society. Like we exploring taboos is great fodder for writing. And I just think that we need more of that, frankly. A writer, you're, that's your job, I think, in a way. Don't you think? No, definitely. Um, yeah, and like you said, it's cool that she like kind of fits that stereotype while being, you know, a woman and not this like Hemingway-esque male figure. <laughs> no, totally. And I think that the place I want to start then, because I was listening to uh, an interview, a 1996 interview from our old friend Charlie Rose. Just, I can't Look. help there's a great YouTube channel called Manu- Manufacturing Intellect that has like all of Charlie Rose's like interviews essentially. And it's just a great name because it does seem like he's just manufacturing <laughs> being smart, but he's got great guests. And I weirdly think because I don't think of him a lot as like this, an intellectual heavyweight, I feel like is trying to like play ping pong with them. And he's more uh-huh. just like trying to keep up. And then the people yeah. are talking. Um, but she wrote a book or a series of essays called on boxing. And she knew Mike Tyson when he was 19 to 20 and she spoke with him at length about his boxing career. And she got really into boxing and like Charlie Rose asks, asks her a couple questions and she totally has an informed opinion. And the thing she got into, she got into hot water pre Twitter in the early nineties. And I think this is, (laughs) this is just like her in a nutshell in this way. So, um, Okay, so and I'm not a boxing expert, so I kind of cobbled together what I found out for the for better context. So um, Mike Tyson gets convicted of rape and he gets KO'd by Buster Douglas. And and when he got KO'd by Buster Douglas, he just was not in like fighting shape at all. And Joyce Carol Oates said something to the effect of it's more surprising to me that he would allow himself to come into the ring unconditioned than for him to rape a woman. Jesus Christ. (laughs) She just said that, like being like. I'm not surprised about this rape. I'm surprised that he would that he would come into the ring like this, man. Um, and she got into like a she referenced that it got her into a lot of trouble. I don't know what trouble was pre pre like Twitter, but I'm sure that like 
I'm sure her status. I'm sure people and, were mad. Yeah, I'm sure people were mad. But I don't even think in, I mean, there's, this story is a lot about women's sexuality and neither of us are experts on this. And I feel like we got to lean into it. But um, do you think, do you think, uh, I don't even think that that ages well. That's just a fiery take, ages poorly. It's just a fiery take to be like, it doesn't surprise me that this famous boxer would abuse a woman. It does surprise me that he'd fall under his his level of conditioning i don't know it's a crazy thing to say i mean i guess it's different since she knew him right like Mm -hmm. i feel like saying that about like a black athlete like oh i'm not surprised you rape someone is kind of like yeah come on but yeah but it just for it to be someone you know and for having to have such a specific comparison one you also don't have to make you could have just said it surprises (laughs) me he he didn't show up in shape okay Uh, fair enough fair enough i forgot about the racial component of play um hence my privilege but um I don't know though. He did get convicted of it though. And here's the the He's thing. He's definitely that... a complicated guy. I mean, I know he had a super hard life too. Um, and now there's a show on Hulu, Mike on Hulu now that I didn't know about until like a day ago. Oh, really? Well, yeah, he certainly had a very hard life. And uh, I don't know. Um, we we don't have to get derailed by this and, and get both get canceled or in hot water ourselves. But it's like she just seems to be this incredibly curious person with a deep reverence for storytelling who's got the intellect, the drive and the craft to get any idea from brain to page. Cause she's so um, prolific. And the thing that's crazy about her, it's one thing to be very prolific in a certain genre or a form, but she's prolific in everything. So she, yeah, um, I saw you said that. I mean, it's, she definitely seems like one of those writers where I'm every time I hear about something she wrote, I'm like, that's the same person. Yeah. Right. I think she's just, and the thing that I really appreciated as well, and I've latched onto um, her masterclass is the only one I've ever been tempted to take because a lot of them are like, just quick side note. I'm sure you got advertised like, um, the Ron Steve Howard, Ron or Howard one. His is actually earnest too. Um, he's like, we probably all can be directors. We just have to back up our instinct with, and then he goes, there's seven stories. I've told there's seven stories. I think there are, there might be one story. And I was like, what is that? Like man loves woman, woman loves man. I don't know what that one story is, but, uh, um anyway man uh, man loves mermaid he directs man, man loves mermaid mermaid freezes man out in san francisco <laughs> and there's no real reason why um no okay so like steve martin for example one thing i it really bothered me he's like a lot of people reach out to ask me you know how do i get representation how do i get an agent how do i get an audition what you should be asking is how can i get good and it's like you cannot teach being good at con. You just can't. You can talk about which choices or subject matter is stronger, but what would actually be great if there was more uh, daylight on how the heck to get an agent. Yeah, that's <laughs> a really, really, yeah, that's a, from someone who is one of the most famous people alive. There should be a, a Tim Robinson sketch, the masterclass. <laughs> that would be really funny. Um, we just got to figure out what Chunky does. <laughs> um. Okay, so she, um, yeah, she's just like uh, this guy says it really well. A prince and scholar. Oh, sorry, I think I interrupted you though. Why, why is her masterclass the one you you were oh, tempted to take? I completely forgot. Thank you for bringing back that up because she says something. It starts up, and I couldn't find it. Maybe it was on the actual masterclass website, which I didn't check. But she said something. She was like, "The hardest part about being a writer is um, other people getting in the way." And like a part of of 
of the masterclass was learning how to block out time and then protect the time. And that's something that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to implement. My wife is really um, understanding and supportive, but the reality is when you have a kid, there's just so it becomes very complex and it's very hard to chart to, to um, like parcel the time. And sometimes I get like, it, it can be, it can be really tough. For example, like our Jackie Brown episode, um, I feel like I had to say, and this wasn't necessarily because of Corey. It was also because of, I was staying with my mom and stuff. Every single day I was like, Sunday, I'm recording an episode from three to 5 PM. You know? right, right, <laughs> and then people would be like, Oh, well, uncle John is thinking about coming down. I'm like, that's cool. I'm right. I'm recording an episode on Jackie Brown from three to 5 PM. What do you want to do this weekend? I was thinking we could go check out this farm. That's cool. On Sunday, I'm recording an episode on Jackie Brown with Tanner Kundrat via Zoom from 3 to 5 p.m. And it's just like, it, it, and then it's crazy because if you don't protect the time, you don't get to do the thing and you resent everyone. But then when you do protect it, you kind of seem inflexible. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, that's a really interesting way to teach it being like, if you want to be a writer, you need time and here's how to protect it. Like very practical, something that nobody's talking about. I feel like, well, real quick, not to um, derail the Joyce Carol Oates um, portion, but I, I have to say the uh, the Joyce Chopra film Joyce at 34 that I watched a short documentary um, about Joyce Chopra directed by her co-directed by Claudia Claudia Wheel um, Weil, probably um, director of Girlfriends great movie Claudia Weil very similar career basically only two features um but it's about Joyce Chopra like it literally opens with her childbirth on camera rock on wow. um, but then uh but it's about her being an aspiring filmmaker and a woman and how to find time and her husband her husband is a playwright and screenwriter who wrote Smooth Talk and half of it is him being like well I need time to write and she's like well I have to go to a film set and he's like I have to write and them like hashing out how like he's like and I realized like if I have to get groceries and that gives me like an hour less a day to write like it's worth it because then Joyce and I will get along and she's also sacrificing and there's a hilarious scene where he is writing with a writing partner and the writing partner is this like very serious guy who's like really riffing on like getting to the heart of something that they're writing no idea what it is and her husband is really just spoon feeding the baby not even paying attention to the guy in their living room. <laughs> But it's it's literally it's the, the whole sub protecting your time. Uh, it's from like a feminist point of view, which is interesting because it, it must have been one of the first documents of that. It's from like 1974. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's exactly what you're talking about, what Joyce Carol is talking about. So that's a that's a cool parallel. That is a cool parallel. I really think it. I think that's very. It's it's also why relationships in the art, like uh, if you're both artists, is really tough because it's like you need the time to do your thing, and. Um, for me, it's like, I have a pretty good, like my partner's interests are more physical. Like she's really into running and, and exercising and she's into meditating and she loves like old historic homes. And it's like, we're not competing for the same type of time. Although I will right. say where, where it gets tricky is that we're both morning people, you know? And I feel like I get, right. So you can't yeah. like wake up and have the time alone. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I did for a little bit when I was getting up at five 30, but then um, I, my uh, grandfather died and I had to go back for a funeral and it just the whole house of cards just fell and next thing you know I'm waking up late again 
Um, it's been, you know, eight months or whatever, <laughs> but, uh, so that can become tricky, but I think it's really hard, um, to block that out. So anyway, I just really appreciated hearing that perspective be, and it's, um, validated a lot of, of my own thoughts of being like, God, like, um, I think it's like, that's what, this is my, now I'm just me spilling out my own baggage, but that's why it's really important. I'd say for any listeners out there who want to take my terrible opinion, it's like the, and I love my wife desperately, uh, but you want to get in a serious relationship. I think once you know yourself more, you know, and I think, you know, yourself more when you get to like 30, like, I feel mm-hmm. like I came out in my twenties trying every single art form and realized what I need is two hours of protected time every day to write stuff down on a piece of paper. And I feel like if I had that from the beginning, maybe it would have been like a little bit easier. It wouldn't be like this big folding in. Although when you have a kid, your life changes innumerable ways. But anyway, does that make sense? No, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, it's it can also be tricky just because like when the thing, the you know, your desired vocation is not what you make money on. Mm-hmm. Even if someone like does support you, it can be hard to be like, I'm going to go do that silly thing for an hour because you have to treat <laughs> it like it's your job. But it's also not yeah. yet, you know, hopefully. No, I, I, it, I totally agree. I've had that thought. I was like, if this is how I earn money, I'd have every right to be like F off. Yeah. 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 There's a great, there's a great line. I would say it's to my students in a different way, but there's a great line in a Joyner Lucas song. Um, and he goes, all these rappers want uh free verses. Fuck up out of here. That's how I make a living. And <laughs> like, like people want him to be on his albums without him. And I say I would say that to my students because my students would be not I wouldn't say f off, but my students would be would want me to lie or something for them because my students were always getting in trouble. And I was like, you're aware of this how I make a living, right? Like I'm not gonna compromise my living so you don't get in trouble with your mom. <laughs> like and they would just stare at me, and then I wanted to just play that Joyner Lucas song. Fuck up out of here is how I make a living. Um, but anyway, back to Joyce Carol Oates. Is there anything you'd like to add on that before we get back to the subject? No, no, no. That's I mean I think that's you know fuck up out of here this is how i make a living fuck up out of here it's how we make a living the film words pod speaking of how they make a living so joyce carol Oates, she's born in rural upstate new york goes to grade school in a one-room schoolhouse she's going to syracuse she wins the mademoiselle short story contest which is a big prize it's an influential uh mademoiselle is an influential fashion magazine intended for college or women in college and it ran from like 1935 to 2001 so winners who won got a one-month lodging in New York City, and the most notable winner of the prize is Sylvia Plath, who drew from her experience um, for her only novel. She's known as a poet, but she wrote one novel called The Bell Jar, and I actually started reading it recently um, because I got really I, it attached to this idea of the sentence of being like, which writers have works um, are excellent at the level of the sentence. Like mm-hmm. each sentence is good, like Lolita was written in English by a Russian author, um, but it was written in English. And apparently he wrote sentence by sentence on index cards. That's why when you read Crazy. it, you're like, yeah, right. But um, where, see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, here we go. It has one of the best opening lines. I it love just, a good opening line. Okay. And it's like, it's obviously I'm, I'm ascribing a lot of her intent onto this line, but I just think it's really funny in a sick, horrible way. It was a queer, sultry summer. The summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. <laughs> <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah, it's like that just is, and you know, as 
Sylvia Plath famously killed herself, famously struggled with depression. And it's like, it, it just perfectly painted that when you're in a messed up place, you you're so blinded to the suffering of others sometimes. Like, right. Exactly. Like, it's about you. Yeah. Which she, it always and, is, but yeah. Um, and that the first like few pages are about, she's basically making the execution of the Rosenbergs all about her. <laughs> just, it was really funny. So uh, Joyce Carol Oates, meets Raymond Smith in 1961. They publish an Ontario, the Ontario Review, a literary magazine. She marries him. They stay married until she, uh, he dies in 2008. She's been teaching at Princeton since 1971. I think she did it much more. That was like her main thing until she became, you know, such a well-known writer. And now she teaches four creative writing workshops every year. And apparently she's very hands-on still with certain students and their manuscripts and their theses. One of them was, um, uh everything was illuminated by jonathan saffron four do you know is that how you say his last name i think four four um i have not read it but i did read his other book extremely loud and incredibly close and i enjoyed it um when a reporter said she was a workaholic she replied i'm not conscious of working hard or working especially hard or of working at all writing and teaching have always been for me so richly rewarding i don't think of them as work in the usual sense of the word cool <laughs> um let's see here what else so we talked about her master class um i think this is a really from the interview i watched with charlie rose i think this is a really uh um good point of view i guess for how like for writing um she says i love to populate real landscapes with somewhat fictitious people who themselves are maybe composites and imaginary I mean, that's the coolest kind of writing. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, so you have here about, um, you know, she wrote Blonde, obviously, which is now finally about to come out as a movie. Um, there, I mean, I guess that's like you're saying, auto, like fictional autobiography of someone else is kind of different, but that's certainly like with the composites and mm -hmm. well, somewhat that, fictitious people. Very interesting. It is, but that was something I wanted to talk to you about because that's obviously that story, that movie is stirring a lot of controversy. And I wonder how that will then be cut with Joyce Carol Oates, Twitter presence and feet and <laughs> incendiary uh, remarks on occasion. Um, but I was just thinking more about form. What do you, what's your thoughts? Let's start here on, on just the biographical fiction form. It's just, it's an odd duck to me. I don't quite understand uh, the appeal because I feel like it's, it's uh, while it's really cool, it just seems like odd if it's about real people, you know? Yeah, I, I get the trepidation a lot of people have with it. I, I mean, I don't know. I think if it's good, who cares? Obviously, there are reasons to care. But uh, I mean, it sounds like people like the book. I mean, I was also like, oh, I should read the book before this Andrew Dominic movie comes out. It's like 800 pages. Mm. Oh, probably it's not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if it's like incisive about like their, I mean, I'm sure this book being about you know, someone, one of the original people who was famous for being famous, kind of, I mean, she's a great actress, but you know, the, her fame was such a part of it. Um, I'm sure it's about that in certain ways. So it's like, does that kind of give you more liberty to play fast and loose or invent when you're talking about someone who like, who everyone's relationship with was kind of like a projection to begin with. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know. I also, a movie that made me think about this, gosh, I can't remember what it's called. I, I watched this movie a couple years ago. That is um, um, about uh, John Lennon and supposedly um, 
having it's like a one weekend with John Lennon and their then manager Brian Epstein before it, before he died called the hours and the times the hours and times no no second the um and it like kind of imagines that they had a sexual relationship which I think okay. is something that had been hinted around maybe oh. um but it's kind of just an imagined weekend between the two of them that surely didn't happen exactly like that and it's kind of like yeah what gives you the right but then also like is there a more public figure than John Lennon is it fascinating yes is it like the movie's sensitive? Yes. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it is very interesting and thorny. I, I don't know that I would do it because I also love like kind of like what she's saying, like a Romana Clef, like mm -hmm. in this quote, like, you know, fictitious people or composites of real people in real settings. I think that's cool and kind of easy to do, you know, like there will be blood. It's like he's not Edward L. Doheny, even though he is, I mm -hmm. guess. Um that's that's I think my thing and again I'm not somebody who I think maybe to a fault I'm like people should be able to do whatever they want and not worry you know not worry about potential consequences but my I guess my problem is it is that is that there will be blood that type of thing is like you can do that you can do the same thing without any possible harm and I think things were different in a way because mass media was much more controlled but we're splintered off into these fragments and I just don't think the public, including myself, are well informed. So like you can't assume that people are in the know, even for iconic people. Like, for example, part of my wedding vows, I was the one who broke it to Corey that John Lennon was assassinated. You know, <laughs> like a very smart working professional with a master's degree did not know that the singular fact that everyone would probably know other than the fact he was on the Beatles. Um, and like Marilyn Monroe has this mythic status, especially for I think women who it's like, she's truly an icon and um, she had a troubled life and is a fascinating character. And I don't think people really know who she really is. And there's so many different conspiracies and I get why the subject matter would be so cool to write, but the, everything with the Kennedys, the fact she had relationships with both Kennedys, Robert mm -hmm. and John. And it's like, that that stuff is, is is such fertile terrain but i think people already get her wrong and i think people aren't informed and you're adding to like i think if she wrote a book called blonde and it wasn't about marilyn monroe but everybody knew it was there would be no issue right right a marilyn monroe type yeah it's interesting but then i wonder if that defeats the purpose of it when it's someone like that famous i don't mm. know well it's weird too because i mean i agree with you but also i do think that's kind of on people you know mm. like you know, people are smart enough to know things. Um, I feel like that's a fair, they're not, they don't, but it's also weird now because we're in this era of like, um, like the viral, like docu-series mm -hmm. on Netflix or something where that's how people learn things. And it's like, a lot of these things are no less fictional, even if they're presented as nonfiction, you know, cinema and television, then like Joyce Carol Oates, like just making shit up about Marilyn Monroe in certain ways. I don't know. It's interesting. That that's an interesting point. I had a thought. And again, we're like, we're kind of in scary uh, territory here, but I think we should explore it. And worst comes worst, we'll cut it out. But um, <laughs> I love like, where this is going. <laughs> well, no, I'm taking what you're saying. No, gonna, no, no, no. I'm yeah. going to put some real, real world proposition to you. Um, Cause uh, I just moved from LA. You live in LA. You see billboards everywhere. It's crazy. I've seen two separate times. I've seen someone I knew in life appear on a billboard. That is crazy. It is wild. And um, uh, so I was driving in Venice in like 2019, I think maybe 2020. Check me on the time once you know the thing. 
And it said, and especially when it's Emmy season, you mm-hmm. see all those FYC signs for your consideration. And it was surviving R. Kelly for your consideration. And I was like, you can't do that. Like, I'm sorry. Like, there's no, like my opinion of it was, was, and is this, unless I get persuaded right now, otherwise is like, okay, certain people, the R. Kelly types are monsters. And the only way you have to have a trial by media. I understand that. Like, you know, that's, that's how these cases get brought to light. That's how real justice gets served. That's how consequences are met. That's how these women can reclaim what's happened to them. I think it's really important an investigative documentary, but when you attach a prize onto that, you're adding into the spectacle, you're adding into you're you're encouraging people to want to be a part of something bigger and people naturally exaggerate their relationship to something that's close to them. That's spectacular. Does that make sense? No, I completely, I mean, that's a really well said and a great point. Yeah. Um, I think that does kind of devalue the whole thing, especially something like that. That's like, you know, uh, presenting itself as a kind of a journalistic, like truth telling of an important topic, you know, mm-hmm. like how important is it if you're then, you know, I don't know, doing the same thing that a Ryan Murphy show does or whatever <laughs> the case. Yeah. Like how can you have a surviving R. Kelly and like my octopus teacher in the same <laughs> subcategory? I'm not saying they are cause they're different forms, but do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, no, right? no, no, absolutely. It is so weird. All the, it's that time of year right now. Um, and yeah, all the billboards are so fine. That just reminds me of the, the the best for your consideration billboard I ever saw was when Portlandia was still on. And it was just the two, you know, the booksellers, mm-hmm. um, oh, maybe canceled that. Yeah, they're so yeah. funny. But the ad was just them. And it just said, we'll consider ourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was really good. There's a thing that Ledger still says from those two. That's this the opening sketch with Steve Buscemi um, is so funny. And then. She's like, what do I look? He's trying to pay her just so he could use the bathroom and get the heck out of there. And she's like, what do I look? Are, do I, are you some, uh, you think I'm a hooker? You think you can just give me money? And then Steve Buscemi goes, what do I look like a pimp? And then she goes, when a man pulls out money away from a register, I have to wonder. <laughs> it's just the funniest line. Carrie Brown scene is hilarious. Um, yeah, I don't know that sketch. I don't know. I don't want to get in trouble. I, it's, it's a weird thing. Cause is, is it cause he's dressing as a woman? I think so. I don't really know. I'm sure it's been like reclaimed or like gone back and forth a million times. I just remember there was something, you know, I don't know. I I think it's like there's. I get for that one is odd to me because it's like so comparing those two and then um, is like, you know, the Gap Girl sketch from mm-hmm. SNL. Okay, you can't act like Chris Farley yelling, lay off me, I'm starving <laughs> isn't hilarious. But like David Spade talked about how when he wrote it all the women on SNL staff uh, all on the cast and staff were pretty pissed. Cause it's like, you know, they already had limited opportunities and here's a sketch about women and they're played by men. Sure, um, sure. So I get why that is not cool. Um, but at the same time, like Portlandia, it's like their vehicle, you know what I mean? And they're yeah. playing all the roles. It feels like you're like, I get when you cross a racial boundary, that's difficult. Um, but at the same time, it's like, aren't you then you're like sectioning off a whole group as, you can't explore and i just don't agree with that i think yeah it's also so hyper specific on that show that it's kind of hard to like separate any of it out as as some larger thing mm-hmm. yeah idea, that is yeah yeah no that's a good point too um okay so let's chat about um let's chat about the actual the the article the pied piper of tucson 
and then we'll go into the um, short story and then we'll get into the film. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay. So the, uh, this story, where are you going? Where have you been? Was written in 1966. Such, such a great title. Like even not knowing what it's about, it like mm-hmm. is chilling. It really is. It really is. And it's, it sets up this thing. We'll talk about it um, in a moment. Um, the duality that's going on in the story. It's like, where are you going? Where have you been? There's this strange dream logic that we talked about in Inherent Vice with the trip that is being tapped into and is so creepy. And it's it's done really well by this story. You know what it reminded me? It reminded me of True Detective. Um, okay, I see that. Know, do you see? There's like this fate that you think you're on and then there's this sudden sinister fate that the 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 murderers are 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 spinning this web to act like no this is your real fate come down with me you're you're destined to be my victim do you know what i mean right and it's also i mean it's again something that maybe the movie is more explicitly about but the it's also like oh you're at an age that's like a crossroads you know Mm -hmm. where are you going where have you been it's like all of it you know Um, no that's a really good point i even considered the age context there um so this was uh, she got inspired, I guess, by two things. One being it's dedicated to Bob Dylan um, because of the song. Uh, where did I write that? It's like something Baby Blue. And maybe it's Baby all Blue. over now. It's all over now, Baby Blue. That's funny. Yes. We both wrote that down separately. Yeah. Uh, but it was inspired by the murders of Tucson, Arizona serial killer Charles Schmid. And it was profiled in Life magazine in an article by Don Moser called The Pied Piper of Tucson. Um, the thing I think is a little interesting is uh, well, a number of things, but that article is really good. Yeah, it, it really is. And <laughs> terrifying and, and really gripping. It's terrifying, really gripping, really well done. And it's, and I don't think, and I, I totally get choice. Carol Oates write something completely different, you know, it's, um, but it is, I feel like nobody maybe knows about that article. And the thing I, I put the Tuesdays with Maury connection, you know, the book Tuesdays with Maury. I do. I've not read it, but I know of it. So it's a famous book by Mitch Albon, the guy who wrote the five people you meet in heaven. And just this is fascinating. So I had, a, I had a professor in college, a sociology professor, Brooks Cohen, had her twice, once for the sociology of the family. The second was uh, sociology of age and adaptation, both really interesting courses. And age and adaptation, we read Maury's book. He wrote his own book about like life's meditations, basically. And Mitch Albom wrote a book about meeting with him and ta- talking about the same subject matter. And nobody knows that Maury wrote his own freaking book about the exact same thing. <laughs> That's very funny. I'd be mad. Yeah. And, and my, my professor who knew him was pissed. He was like, nobody, like he totally, he, Mitch album saw a story. That's his function in life, but it drowned out this other thing that was by the guy. <laughs> um, and I kind of feel like there's a little bit going on with that here, but at the same time, the, the, you know, the short story was a part of a collection. This is a part of a magazine. They both serve their function. I don't think there's really yeah, yeah. Problem. They're totally different. Yeah. While still, I mean, I don't know. It, it is. It's such a cool piece. I mean, this is like a triple adaptation we got going on here. <laughs> it is. Um. So Tanner, I'm going to put you on the spot if you don't mind, because I'm going to read it a little in a little bit. Um. I just wanted to. I because it also really evokes an image of the movie. But would you want to read what I wrote there from? I just copied and pasted the first three paragraphs from this article. Absolutely. Put you on the spot here. At dusk in Tucson, as the stark yellow flared mountains begin to blur against the sky, the golden car slowly cruises speedway. 
Smoothly, it rolls down, rolls down the long divided avenue, past the supermarkets, the gas stations and the motels, past the twist joints, the sprawling drive-in restaurants. The car slows for an intersection, stops, then pulls away again. The exhaust mutters against the pavement as the young man driving takes the machine swiftly, expertly through the gears. A car pulls even with him. The teenage girls in the front seat laugh, wave, and call his name. The young man glances toward the rearview mirror, turned always so he can look at his own reflection, and he appraises himself. The face is his own creation, the hair dyed raven black, the skin darkened to a deep tan with pancake makeup, the lips whitened, the whole effect heightened by a mole he has painted on one cheek. But the deep-set blue eyes are all his own. Beautiful eyes, the girls say. Approaching the hi-ho, the teenager's nightclub, he backs off the accelerator, then slowly cruises past on Johnny's drive-in. The cars are beginning to orbit and accumulate in the parking lot, near sharp cars with deep-throated mufflers and Maltese cross decals on the windows. But it's early yet, not much going on. The driver shifts up again through the gears, and the golden car slides away along the glitter and gim crack of Speedway. Smitty keeps looking for the action. Isn't don't you think that's so evocative? It's so evocative. I never it's used twice in the story. Never heard the word gim crack before. I don't think I have either. It's also I I'm I'm from Arizona, not from Tucson, but you know, I'm from Phoenix, Phoenix, Tucson, kind of a rivalry. I've spent plenty of time in Tucson and they share a lot of similarities, certainly in terrain. Um, but oh, it's so interesting reading this about what Tucson was like compared to what it's like now and the similarities and differences. Speedway is like the major road. Um Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't, I figured cause it was capitalized. It was something like that. Um, so the, that was really interesting too, because uh, just learning about Tucson, having, I've never been there, but, um, it talks kind of about the problems of Tucson and basically how it's people realize it's a, because of the climate, it's a cool place to live and how it's like, it's just kind of ballooning, but there's like this underbelly of like no motivation. And then there's these dark things of like, uh, there are a shit ton of runaways. Um, and I just think they just like painted this, this really sinister, but deeply American like point of view. And basically, ultimately, I wish I wrote it down. Let me see if I can find it. Um, basically, the author is like, like this guy is extremely messed up who did this stuff. But Tucson needs to come to terms with things that are going on as well. Because a lot of people were upset about the backlash. There was this national backlash being like, the teens of Tucson are crazy. And then the guy was like, that's not fair. Although a lot of people were in the know about what this guy was doing and didn't say anything because they either didn't want to get in trouble or stir the pot. But like that being said, there's a lot of stuff going on and this city needs to take a look at a hard look at itself. And I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's like it's a lot of what he says describes how I feel about Phoenix as well. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, now, certainly. And I imagine then like Tucson is kind of the smaller, cooler, artsier Phoenix. It's um, both are college towns, but Tucson being a smaller city feels more affected by that more, you know, liberalized free-minded it's also nearer the mexican border so i mean that's not something he mentioned but it's like there's an incredible latin influence there it's and it's wonderful the food like the culture like this kind of makes it seem like a lily white suburb place which i doubt it ever was 
um mm. certainly isn't now but the sprawl i mean the sprawl of phoenix i mean it's just crazy that it was in 1966 i mean now it's a huge problem phoenix and tucson it just goes on forever and you know that's like the world is dying because of that and certainly with like retirement and aging i, I hadn't considered that all <laughs> i love that what he said about all the the minimum wage jobs are taken up by like semi-retired <laughs> yeah. people so yeah. the kids have nothing to do so they're just drinking beers in the desert i mean my mom grew up in phoenix around this time and she's they certainly would like go out to like the desert or the mountains and just drink um i'm sure that's common in most places but something about it being in the desert does feel kind of like novel compared to like the the average american experience yeah no that's really that is fascinating i think i highlight like tag that as well talking about the urban sprawl and this is like if anybody had uh just all the problems have gotten worse probably yeah it, um but it is funny because the way you're talking about it though too makes me think well maybe this writer as well and similar to me not calculating uh the racial element of mike tyson's uh joyce carol oates mike tyson comment is like he maybe is a little bit myopic then about yeah i mean i'm sure it's true about the suburban stuff and it's like a very like tennis playing place but uh yeah, I mean, one of my best friends is, is from Tucson, and I know so many people who went to school there. It, I mean, it's called the Old Pueblo. It, it is like, you know, um, there's a lot of cool, cool uh, Latin culture there. Um, but it is also, yeah, the sprawl, the, the strip malls, the parking lots just going on forever and ever into the desert. I love what he says, how he describes the saguaros and how they're almost like humanoid, which is so true. Um, it can feel like a totally alien, almost like lunar landscape. And didn't you tell me that Arizona is one of the the uh, biggest UFO states? Definitely true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie Fire in the Sky is set in Flagstaff, I believe. Set, I mean, it's based on events in Flagstaff. Flagstaff is cool. I feel like that's the new. Flagstaff's super cool. Flagstaff yeah. and Tucson both are kind of always like... Um, there i mean flagstaff is literally like a rail town you know like trains go through there so it's kind of like a transitory like mm -hmm. quote-unquote hobo vibe in addition to being a college they're both college towns um but i feel like they're both seen as random cities versus phoenix is like a metropolis but you know whatever the beatles lyric is jojo left met his man in tucson arizona like it's just there are places you say in songs same mm -hmm. with flagstaff well, there's that's funny because there's the big song. You've heard the song "Closer" by Chainsmokers, right? This is a huge. It's funny that you reference because there's a huge. There's a really. It was like number one forever in like 2017, 2018. It was like song with the Chainsmokers. It's like, uh, how does it go? It's like, um, it goes. There's that Blink 182 song that we beat to death in two song. <laughs> that's funny um and it's like kind of it's about like this road trip with this love that's there yeah it's somewhere yeah. you drive through um, yeah yeah i mean god i mean but all this stuff just the portrait of tucson in this story was really interesting tucson in the 60s i guess um yeah um i know i really appreciate it as well so i think a good way to segue and then maybe reverse engineer real quick is so charles schmidt this serial killer is really fascinating and obviously terrible doesn't need to be said but the, the reason that it sticks out have you ever listened to the podcast bearbrook no it's a really interesting podcast it's about barrels that were found this is crazy too um so they found two barrels that had people in it um in a new i think in new hampshire 
um, and they figured out who the people were in the barrels over time. And then they went back 30 years later and they found that there were two more barrels with people in it just like six feet away. And they didn't see it the first time. Isn't that just humor? That is crazy. Yeah. Um, but so this guy, forget his name, but they, they figured out it was victims of this serial killer. And but that guy and this and Charles Schmidt are the only serial killers I know that um, that their victims were all people they knew. It's right, very rare, right. it's very rare for that. And then that's what I'm like so fascinated by um, this thing is that this guy killed people that he knew and pe- and he told people about it. And right. it's pretty, pretty ad- brazen, pretty brazen. And that's something that was smooth talk. So I let's, let's just get started there. But that's something we should loop back to because I think this movie is really good and really interesting. It's quite short. It's quite lean. I feel like that stuff because you have such a character, a big character, obviously you don't want to overshadow Connie's story, but I think movies about relationships are really interesting and murder and victim is a relationship. And I think what this, this um, short story and film do particularly well, I actually think the short story does a little bit better is they really humanize Connie in a way that's like, this is a real person with flaws. This isn't someone we're putting a halo on because they're, maybe dead although obviously connie doesn't die um in the in the film like this is a real person who had their struggles their triumphs and um ultimately she does a very noble thing she chooses family when you think she hates her family right right um so let's talk about about smooth talk tanner do you want to throw anything there about joyce uh joyce number two before we uh dive into to the the film here yeah i mean you know she uh she started out as a, a documentary filmmaker. I mean, she was born in New York, uh, deep Brooklyn, Coney Island and Brighton Beach, went to Brandeis University. Um, and then this is a fun fact, opened a European style uh, coffee house in Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Bob Dylan and Joan Baez eventually played there, it became quite like a you know music club. And then she became a documentary filmmaker um, in the 70s, uh, made the movie Joyce at 34 with Claudia Weil, which I mentioned. Some of the other documentaries she made, um, it's interesting, she made one about a professor, don't know what that deal was, one about two young Black women who were drifting apart in friendship as they got older, and then another uh, about specifically about 12-year-old girls going on into teenagerhood. which I mean, obviously relates to the first two thirds of this movie and its subject. Mm -hmm. Um, So then, yeah, she met her husband, the playwright, Tom Cole, and then she kind of became a fiction filmmaker through their collaboration. They adapted some plays for the PBS American um, film or PBS American Playhouse television series. And then um, he wrote Smooth Talk. So they collaborated on that. Uh, Yeah, it won the grand jury prize at Sundance, the movie, but only made 16 grand in its initial release, took forever to get a home video release because of rights issued issues, was eventually put on DVD in 2004. And then kind of, at least I never really heard of it. And it kind of um, was reappraised when Criterion restored it in 4K in 2020 in the pandemic, put it out on its collection the next year, but it got kind of like a, a theatrical release from Janus in 2020 wasn't much of the theatrical release obviously but that's how i first saw it through the uh, the new york uh, theater metrograph in the pandemic was doing digital at home screenings of like movies that would be playing theatrically and i kind of heard that this is an interesting movie an early laura dern movie uh it was totally just 
shocked and blown away by it in the pandemic. Um, yeah, and then it's a story where she she made one more more mainstream movie, The Lemon Sisters, in 1990. Never heard of this, starring Diane Keaton and Carol Kane, um, like kind of a comedy family drama was really poorly received supposedly was re-edited for like a year and then since then she's basically made a bunch of random made for tv movies and then you know she directed several law and orders i think an svu a criminal intent a couple episodes of everwood and an episode of crossing jordan and that's kind of it which is i don't know it's a bummer it's interesting she Mm -hmm. made that movie with claudia weill who made the great film girlfriends in the 70s and it's so similar because claudia weill followed that up with um with a movie, gosh, what's it called? With Michael Douglas, um, a rom-com that w- was, I think, seen as a total failure. Like it was followed, it's called It's My Turn. And then since then, she basically only has done TV, like done some cool stuff. Um, but, and I saw It's My Turn recently and it's really good and fascinating too. And it's like, damn, you just get one more shot after your mm-hmm. breakthrough. And then I mean, imagine, especially as a woman, you're just totally written off. Um, I know. I think that's, I think a lot of directors and women, I can think of, I think of, uh, you know, um, uh, Elaine May comes to mind as well. Cause she had oh, Ishtar yeah. and then De- that. definitely. Yeah. And in the, yeah. And that's a similar movie now where it's like, people are like, Ishtar is hilarious. Um, and I think it just becomes a joke as like a bad movie. And then it's, it's a wrap and it's crazy watching. I mean, even just technically like the last, a third of this movie you're like she's clearly such a talented filmmaker mm-hmm. it's it's kind of hard to imagine that she didn't get a Another few shot. more shots i mean who knows i don't know what her you know her desires were for her career but i do think a lot of i have to say that like you're much but you're, you're this is all knowledgeable about film tanner as audience so my friend emily was uh staying with me for a couple weeks tanner came over to hang out and we were telling her about this podcast and she goes, you should do that one. You should, you should guys should do an episode on that one Joyce Carol Oates story that became a movie. And then Tanner was like, what happens in it? And Emily's like, I can't quite remember. And I was like, Oh, is it, where are you going? Where have you been? And then Emily was like, I think that's it. And I described the plot of the short story and Tanner was like, smooth talk knew what this book was a movie just from the plot. But anyway, I do think, I'm drawn to the, the heavy hitters, you know, I like the, the Tarantinos, the PTAs, the, the Wes Andersons. I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable of those guys, but there's so many directors who are, who are just direct or their main thing is directing and they work for a studio. And what happens is it feels like you, you, if you lose money once you're on, you're in, you're in TV now. Yeah, that does have, I mean, and it's great. Like, you know, a lot of people, you know, you're like, oh, what happened to that director? And it's like, oh, they've directed 50 episodes of TV and made probably millions of dollars doing that. Like, that's great. But there are some, I mean, I do feel like with like, there's a cult of personality, especially in this time around the male director. And I do feel like you can kind of fail a few times. And if you made mm-hmm. one cool movie, it's like you get another bite of the yeah. apple, maybe. Um no, I'm sure it's easier. I think a lot of people, what I was saying was a lot of people follow that pattern. I do think it obviously is inherently easier sure. if you're a, a, a guy. Um, but I, it, it seems like though, just, just, just putting in context, it's, it's significantly more difficult for women, but in general, it's cutthroat for everybody too. For sure. Yeah. And like you said, that path to TV is definitely a common one. Um, it seems like the only two director and you probably know way more than me, but the two directors who come off my head, who've been able to who've been able to weave throughout both because their, their work is successful is Paul Feig and Greg Matola. Definitely. I mean, yeah, I think in Greg Matola, like, and 
he kind of like yeah he's an interesting one because he had the day trippers and kind of just in tv then super bad then he's had a couple movies that have been like total failures but you're always going to get the guy who did super bad and directed a bunch of uh arrested development to come back and do a tv show like well, he, he did adventureland not? which was awesome though no adventureland is great i did I, it I mean, failed commercially i think that i think it did pretty well but like recently he had the um keeping up with the joneses was like a huge failure in both ways and he's oh. got this new movie, uh, a new Fletch movie coming out with three weeks. And the trailer was just released, which I was like, that can't bode well. But this guy's such a cool director. Fletch, um, uh, the, the Chevy, the Chevy, the Chevy Chase. Chase yeah. But I think it's based on a bunch of books. I've never read the books. And this oh. is kind of more, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay. well, it's not really a remake as much as it is an adaptation of a different book. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I think, yeah, they definitely go back and forth a lot. Um, I think there are a lot of smaller, like, um, oh, what's her name? Wonderful filmmaker. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> cut this out. Uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're well, better than I am. That's some Googling. My uh, joke was going to be uh, Sophia oh, Coppola, because that's <laughs> the one I know. <laughs> uh, Nicole Holof Center, um, you know, makes her own uh, really cool independent talky rom-com movies and then directs like a bunch of parks and rec i mean before she died lynn shelton who kind of started mm-hmm. out as a mumblecore director like you know, did a bunch of hump day your sister's sister did a bunch of mad men's and glows and just kind of and continue to make her movies so that's certainly a path for that level of filmmaker and then yeah there are bigger ones i mean soderbergh will direct like a whole season of tv that's kind of different because those are usually like his projects mm-hmm. um i feel like it's if 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 what I would in my head, I'd be like, if I was any of these people, I would be like successful. Like you, you direct the feature films, you produce the TV. Yeah. You know? I think that's the move. Yeah. Like, directing. Like it's Fincher. definitely like a day job. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously like, uh, Fincher, he directs a lot of Mindhunter. Oh, that's that's such a bummer. It's not coming back. That second season is so good. It's so good. And the thing that sucks about period pieces, it bas- I, I read about it and it's basically like, the film it was well received but it since it wasn't a smash it they couldn't justify the production cost. so expensive right especially when it's, it's so particular um but fuck because it's a great show um okay so smooth talk so this is where i'm at with this film and then maybe you you can you can share your point of view and kind of go piece by piece um i've only seen it once and like i said in my jackie brown episode uh, when I was uh, uh, dismissive of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I since reappraised after watching it, um, I, I don't. I feel I'm hesitant to speak on films I've seen once. Um, I absolutely love the cinematography, the set design, the film grain. I thought was really cool. It added to such a texture. The shot selection, the performances of Laura Dern and her friends. The thing I really loved about it the most, actually, I think there was like this. And I don't know. Do you know where what time period it takes place in? Because it's written in the 60s, but there's this 80s like editing aesthetic, the music, the glam, the, the bop. It feels like an after school special that just sheds its like didactic quality where they're trying to force feed this message and just becomes like a compelling, interesting, entertaining yeah. story. That's so well said. I mean, th- I, I guess I, it's definitely set in, in, you know, 1985 um, when it came out, but that's so true. Yeah. Cause it does. I mean, and who knows how much of that is dating it, you know, it's got like the James Taylor songs that are mm-hmm. both part of the story. Like, you know, she talks about that James Taylor song, but like the opening song and they're going to the mall and it's all very like, oh, this is just so 80s. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. it slowly becomes more and more real until it like reaches this insane third act. Um, 
yeah i mean the mall aesthetic there's so oh, many yeah. of the dated things it's funny i thought it was hilarious i mean they're going to check out boys and i love that they specifically check out the quote-unquote buns of the guys at the mall <laughs> referring to their butts i was, loved that no they um, it did such a good job the narcissism of youth where you want everyone to notice you you know it's where so they, true. Go, they go into that like purse shop with that what that purse shop what, or shop what was that and they're talking so loud and it's like clearly really annoying and everyone's like kind of exchanging looks like here we go like you know it's something that i mean i think specifically laura dern's performance gets at so well i think it's maybe because we know her and she's so clearly like incredibly young in this that Mm -hmm. you just can see the gears turning of someone who's trying to force their way into like this next stage of life of like being sexualized because that's what you're Mm -hmm. supposed to do and she is sexualized, but you can see that she's young and performing it and both doesn't know she's as young as she is, you know, like when she they mm-hmm. pass the guys on the escalator and she reaches over, you're like, yeah, these guys are maybe into it, but I'm so embarrassed because we've mm-hmm. all been there and girls especially are kind of forced to take that route or at least, it, you know, it probably feels that way. And it's just like, oh, my God, it sucks to be that age. <laughs> I mean, it it does. It really does. I think the scariest thing about adolescence is that you don't realize you're an idiot. You're no, just exactly. Like, you just don't get you. You think it's like you think, oh, no, this is I'm in life and I'm a grown uh, up now. Yeah, everyone else is wrong, uh, especially adult figures. I think this film explores like a coming of age with in terms of female sexuality in such a real non-exploitative way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it it really it, it kind of reveals the familial the societal and the gender-based pressures i think because it's like we see all those different point of views it's like family they're really worried she's going to get pregnant they think they're they all but say she's a whore they worried about her trashy daydreams there's totally like this i'm telling you don't go there type of thing societally um I think that kind of merges with gender when she's in the, she's in the scene with the car and she's clearly really into it now, but you can't kind of tell it's so that's such a layered complex scene because I think the second guy she hooks up with in the, the, in the parking garage, in the parking lot, because they're doing a whole cat and mouse game and I'm watching it. I'd like to give it a rewatch. No, but it's, it's, it's a type of thing where you're like, is this, are you into, are you pretending to not be in, are you, are you, is this an act? Are you not into this? Are you creeped out by this? Are you feeling pressure? Then they're in the car and they're hooking up. And she says like, I don't usually get this excited. And in my head, I'm like, are you really turned on? Are you looking for a way to get out? Like um, it, to me, it was like, I kind of read that scene. I'm curious your interpretation. Like she was, she gives into that instinct. And then all of a sudden becomes super fearful about like judgment. I, I mean, I th- that's totally how I took it. And I, mean, I think it is confusing in a way that like um, is pr- probably intentional because it must be so confusing for her. I took it. I took her at face value that she is excited, but then it's like, oh my God, am I doing this? I'm with this, this adult in a car and like my family's back home and I am just a kid and not knowing which is which and what to do and just kind of backing out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's just um one thing that i think is 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 interesting too is like the age of it is like so it's what's so interesting is like and terrible is like so women you just never see it the other way around usually mm-hmm. right because that's how it is like no very few women are attracted to younger men <laughs> you know what i mean very few women are like 20 and are like uh 
like you know obviously you know my story <laughs> but uh uh we can cut that out but um um the point is though generally speaking would you agree with that yeah i mean i i think yeah and who knows if that's because that's what society tells us is acceptable or power dynamics or whatever the case but certainly yeah that's not a common yeah i wasn't 15 cruising like the uh the hot dog shop and picked up by a college sophomore mm -hmm. who, who's just so nice <laughs> yeah and it's like it's just funny because i think there's this gross sort of thing it's now being challenged um and some of it i do think is evolutionary like you're just when someone's a tread there's a great line in the picture of dorian gray where this terrible guy is corrupting dorian gray is like beauty is the one thing you need not explain like you just know when someone's a smash but it's like when you're I think it's like women are in this is traditional traditionally speaking women are attracted to men who are men right because it's like they're this is a this is someone who's responsible this is someone who has their life together this is someone who's mature and men often are attracted to um like it feels like like young girl like younger young not like girls not like pedophilia but like they're attracted to the to the the late teens early 20s regardless of their age do you know what i mean that's why you see mm -hmm. so many men you see so many zach braff stating the Flo florence pews um i heard pamela adlon talk about it in her wtf interview that she finds it's hard to date in la because she's having to compete with 20 year olds jesus um and i just that just that's something that's very specific to 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 I think women that men don't deal with, they almost everyone, they can date someone age who's age inappropriate or date someone their own age. It feels like that doesn't go both ways. Right. You have more optionality. I mean, it kind of seems like that's changing at least like, I don't know, with like certain social, like what's acceptable. It's so crazy because you do grow up probably just from film and television thinking that oh it's normal for adult men to date like college girls but then mm -hmm. you watch something like this that like is exploring this idea and you're like these people are so young or even now like you drive if I spend time around UCLA I'm like these are children mm -hmm. and it's That's like the same thought oh it's like, so what would you talk gross. about yeah and they're, oh. like their class like, <laughs> like you know what would I talk about my bills and my jaded attitude um like ray and soshana and girls um but yeah so i don't know i don't want to get too bogged down and say anything messed up but i do you get where i'm coming at with that type of stuff you were on the same page there no no absolutely um and i think this film explores it really really well and the here are the couple issues i have with it um just to be a pedantic boob um i i do think the mother's casting is distracting to me, because she's pretty, the mom is pretty young. And I looked up the actress. She was like 38 when this was played. And Laura Dern, I don't know if it's because exactly. Like I, I know Laura Dern from Marriage Story. I know her from Jurassic Park. I know her from those things. And then to see her as a teen, I just, she seems older to me. Like she doesn't seem like she's 15. She seems like she's more like, I don't know, 16, 17 or 18. And then the mom to me doesn't seem like, you know, 40s. She seems to me like mid 30s. And then June is supposed to be 24, at least in the short story. And I'm like, I think they, I, I was just a little bit distracted by that casting. I think if there was an older mom who was clearly past her prime, which is a tension in the short story that the mom, she thinks the mom hates her because of um, she's pretty and the mom's lost her looks. Um, and I think that just is a really interesting same sex parent dynamic um, that sometimes it's harder you it's it, it's a in the formative adolescent years it's sometimes men fight with their dads and women fight with their moms yeah i think um 
yeah, Mary Kay plays plays her mom, who's a great actress, and I do think she's great in this. But I, I don't disagree. She does feel a bit young. Honestly, when I was watching again and it started, and I couldn't quite remember what was happening. This is the second time I've seen it. I thought she was the sister for a second. Um, <laughs> so I do agree, um, and I do think the movie is playing with those ideas of like resentment that a mother may have for a teenage daughter who like kind of has this burgeoning adulthood. Um, it is also strange because the dad is quite. Love the dad so odd. He's he's much older. It seems <laughs> he like he's from a so totally weird. totally different place. It's a strange accent. Yeah. I was really struck this time. He has that that moment where he's sitting out on his lawn chair and he just is essentially telling Laura Dern, telling Connie how like proud he is that he like owns his house and he's like, and I just have this chair here. No one can tell me not to sit in it. And it's kind of an interesting parallel with the Arnold Friend character who just like. Gun comes and takes what he can't you know the other mm-hmm. main male character um i don't know i do think i i am i mean because like there's also you know blue velvet is just a couple years after this and i do think that movie she's also shockingly young in because yeah i do i'm like laura dern i picture jurassic park laura dern um but i there are moments in this movie where i'm like okay she looks like laura dern and then she'll like turn a certain way or you'll see her from a different angle and i'm like oh my god this is the youngest i've seen laura dern even mm-hmm. that alone is upsetting and i think that that kind of dichotomy plays really well with where she's at in the movie um mm-hmm. no i i know i i i'm in agreement it's 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 certainly um shocking in a way and then you're like no, it's it, it's it's just that I found that casting a little distracting. Sounds like maybe you did a little bit as well on the second watch. Um, I just think that tension between the parents could have been a little bit. It's a type of thing that like if it's and I'll I'll hop off this, but if the casting I feel like was a little bit different, and I don't want to get too caught up on the movie I wanted as opposed to the movie I can I can do that's running it through a set of criteria that I've pre-selected for no real reason. Um, but if that isn't there, it feels like there needs to be more explaininess. You know, where her mom being like, I was once pretty, you know, like you kind of want that. And maybe I'm in the know too much in a not good way because I've read the short story and I'm we're analyzing it in that context. But um, I felt like, yeah, that that for me kind of got I didn't think could have been I thought could have been pushed further. And then um, I think but where the film really succeeds in the adaptation is opening up the world like we're the 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 uh, the mall world, the the boys um, and their buns on the on the escalator going to the movies and going all that stuff that is in the short story like giving that life I thought was really successful oh, it's so it's such a cool adaptation in that way and I mean yeah for anyone who hasn't read the short story all of that like the only action that actually takes place in the short story is the confrontation with Arnold Friend the rest mm-hmm. is just kind of description of Connie's life at this point in time this summer saying that you know she what she does is she goes to the mall with friends and she lies about going to the movies and she dresses up to perform and becomes an entirely different person when not around her her family um, and just that that's made you know flesh in a way in the movie for the first you know, hour of the movie is just these things being lived. It is so well done. And that family dynamic, you know, whether it's like totally successful or not is, is opened up and becomes so much more about that. Uh, but it's all taken from the short story too, which kind of gets through that in, you know, a page or two so successfully. Um, it, yeah. it, it really does. Oh, go ahead. No. Yeah. I just, oh, and it all, it just felt like that's it. I'm not a, I'm not a girl or a woman and I wasn't a girl. And, uh, <laughs> The I didn't go through this specific experience, but the, just the experience of like summertime in high school 
and you're wanting to hang out with your friends and you have this weird dynamic with your parents. And this is certainly my sister and my mom more had this kind of dynamic. And I was more like the good boy, uh, kind of the, the older sibling who was like not as cool and also in less trouble. But one summer in college, I, my parents moved kind of far away from where all my friends lived about 45 minutes. And I stayed with them over the summer and didn't have my own car. And if I wanted to take the car at night to go see my friends, even if it wasn't being used, I had to shovel gravel in our backyard for an hour, like not shovel a certain amount, but do it for an hour. It's like 115 degrees in Phoenix. Oh, and, God. and it was just like, I know you're just mad at me for no reason. Cause I'm like going to hang out, not with you. And that uh, it just all of this, like when she's like mad at her for not doing other people's dishes before she's eaten. Yeah. It, like that doesn't make sense. And this is also exactly what a mom who resented her kid for reasons she doesn't understand would do. No, I totally agree. And I'm totally in that vein. But now I will say this Tanner as a parent now, and I've read and please put me in my place um, as needed, but I'm struggling because uh the, the the where I'm getting stuck as a parent and I'm is um past and present eastern and western culture and I read a book that I thought was fascinating it was called hunt gather parent and I've been obsessed with this idea of like life is objectively much better now than it was but it's exceedingly more complicated it feels like mm. because obviously social media all that stuff and I'm like and the book is distilling is this woman went and studied and uh, basically she read all these anthropological studies. She's an NPR reporter and she goes to these areas in the world where they're basically the oldest cultures exist and look how they parent kids and base. And she found the commonalities and a big one is, it's a lot about motivation. And in the West, we motivate with praise and rewards where like um, LA, maybe not, not every family, but often you kids are motivated and there's diminishing returns on that. Whereas these cultures, they tap into the, the, the child from a very early age, their intrinsic motivation to be a part of their family. Mm. And basically it's like, your job is to help the family. You're going where your parents are going. You'll figure you'll play along the way. Um, you're helping your family do whatever they need. And I'm just like such a, I was just such like a piece of shit. I feel like as a kid, I never did chores. Like I never did anything that would serve the the family. And granted, my, my parents were divorced. I had a difficult um, situation there, but I told, and I still feel that way. Like, dude, secret, there's a fucking chipmunk that drowned in the pool. I'm not pulling that shit out, but I know about it. I've been home alone for a day. I should hundred percent be like, this is my family. I'm taking the, I'm taking this out. And uh, speaking of which, my mom's calling and I'm going to mute it because I'm podcasting. Um, so it's interesting because it's like, this is such a rant and I apologize, but I'm dealing with this. So I'm telling you. No, um, yeah, you, yeah. You can see it from both sides now. Um, and it, it's it's messing with me because I'm like, God, I need Florence to be, a, you know, we got to, she's got to be, she's got to be on team Baker. We got to get her going forward. And then I look back at myself and I'm like, God, <laughs> didn't help at all ever. And I still don't. It is really funny. I mean, yeah, it's I, I had to do a ton of chores as a kid. I mean, it was fine. My mom's great. Um, but it definitely like I hate it so like I like cleaning things. Don't get me wrong. And I like keeping a clean house and I've and like in certain ways, but the chores shit, like I have no desire to ever own a house because I'm like I'm done with yard work forever. <laughs> like I've I called it. I, I want to get a condo. 
that's true. exactly exactly yeah. um but it's just like god i hate it and like oh well, what are you doing around here or like my mom <laughs> my mom would like always start loudly doing yard work or chores at like 6 a.m on the weekend and then if i like complained or like woken up she's like well why didn't you go to bed earlier so you could help us out like it's not my fault you stayed up late and it's just like man I was so like and her being like well who's gonna paint the house why can't you paint it I just like yeah she's a little piece of shit to her family Connie at times but I was also like man I feel for her no I agree she was and I do think she's in unfairly in the crosshairs I'm just texting me I figured it out how to collapse the big stroller that's adorable it's it's god oh and she left a message (laughs) a voicemail and a text about collapsing the stroller uh see yeah yeah, you gotta reunite with her after you have a very menacing encounter with a maybe serial killer okay yeah let's let's get there so um my experience of the book was i was waiting i and i came to it like this we read it and during um like right before halloween when i was a senior in that writing class i mentioned our last week and it was prefaced. The teacher's like, we're reading a scary story next week. And, um, and I was reading the first couple of pages and I was like gripped by the, the dramatic irony where the reader knows something the character doesn't. Cause I knew something scary would happen. And I became much more into the story. Um, and in a way still am when Arnold friend arrives, I felt like I honestly checked out when Arnold friend got there in smooth talk because instantly i'm like i didn't think it was they were doing it right and i'm sorry for being a douche but i was like i i i i have issues with the third act and i was like oh everything building to this and then i just think it's such a cop-out that he brings her back oh interesting that that yeah yeah you see her come back um i think i mean i get what you're saying and i do think the end of the short story is so powerful that it just goes Mm -hmm. off but it's i mean I, i it's like i wonder if it's I mean, I love a dark ending, but I wonder if it's just that since this character's world is opened up so much more that it's almost like a responsibility to give her some agency. Because there are a few other, like, a lot of the exchange in the movie that's, the third act is, you know, the action mm-hmm. of the short story, basically. Her encounter mm-hmm. with Arnold Friend. A lot of the dialogue is taken right from the book. Directly from it, yeah. Great, terrifying. Um, but there, there are a few, like, when she's decided to go with him, um she uh you know there's the the line in the book that uh he 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 calls her his sweet little blue-eyed girl mm-hmm. um and it's just you know my sweet little blue-eyed girl he said in a half sunk sigh that had nothing to do with her brown eyes um but in the movie connie responds and she's mm-hmm. already decided to go with him and we're on we we see her face and him behind him in the background he's mm-hmm. not seeing her face and she has this kind of resolve and she has like says like you know my eyes are brown or like Mm -hmm. or whatever the case and I I thought that was interesting and I thought her coming back and making it more about the family and her relationship with her sister I just think because watching again I was also like oh right it's a bummer kind of a bummer that she comes back but I think it's the stuff about the family is so powerful and how she says she doesn't even know what happened and maybe she made it all Mm -hmm. up to her sister I just I thought that was really moving and just like kind of speaks to what the movie gets at differently than the short story because it's opened up this world of youth and family mm-hmm. and everything. Um, and just the, the, the open question of like, what happened to her? Like, mm. did, you know, I mean, I kind of always assumed he raped her, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, 
that's interesting. I think you have a better ability of appreciating for what it is versus what it's not. And I can get hung up on this. And there are things I certainly appreciate, but I think the, the, and I want to actually read real quick the rest of that sentence that you just referenced. Cause I think this is like where mm, I did end it. Right. Um, because I think this is a good way of context for what I'm getting at. So my sweet little blue eyed girl, he said in a half sung sigh that had nothing to do with her brown eyes, but was taken up just the same by the vast sunlit reaches of the land behind him and on all sides of him. So much land that Connie had never seen before and did not recognize except to know that she was going to it. And it, I just, I'm so haunted by that line. And I feel like it's, it's, there are plenty of ways. I feel like for, there's this, the, I think this idea, and again, I'm fully admitting I'm running my, my point of view through a predetermined set of criteria, but like, I think this idea of agency, we muddy the waters when we, when that's associated with winning, right? That's like, she gets out with her life. Therefore she's asserting something where it's like, for me, I'm like, no, like this is someone's agency being snuffed out in this way that is like so deeply upsetting in a type of gendered violence that only happens in one direction. And now it means something cinematically because we've been so invested in her story. Does that make sense? I agree. And I don't think, I mean, yeah, maybe agency was the wrong word. Cause I don't mean, it's not like it's a good thing. I think mm-hmm. it's more like, it, it kind of like gives it a little more, it, 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 it like it has more of a responsibility to a relationship with their family to see that because it's given them the light of day that the short story just, you know, doesn't have the space for. Cause I do think it is, it's more that like by returning to her family after whatever happened, mm-hmm it makes this terrible thing more normal in that uh, normal. I mean, it's not any less terrible or like, I mean, it feels almost mythic, which I don't know, maybe that's disrespectful, but it's like, and then she comes back to her family and she's going to like go through the things that we know all like women go through dealing Mm -hmm. with their mom. But like this insanely horrible thing happened to her. And it's Mm -hmm. almost more like that is normal. Yeah, because she's returning to this like that's a common experience versus like this thing where like maybe she's dead maybe she's gone it's more like yeah this woman who like would you know laura dern maybe she's gonna go on to become your mom like yeah she had this insane encounter with a man that actually makes total sense with how the world works and she had to just go on living and be a sister and a daughter and a person afterwards so Here's where uh, here, and I, I, t- I respect the hell out of that opinion. I'm going to push back a little bit and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have to edit it because I do know. Okay. So for me, and this is again, just what I wanted to see, but there's huge emphasis in the short story on her decision to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. And Arnold friend even says you're better than all of everybody, you know, because nobody else would have done this for you. And it's like this piece of shit teenager who's being very self-involved ultimately you know, sacrifices herself in a way to save her family because he's threatening her family. And I thought that was really powerful because even the most fucked up shitty teenagers like myself as a teen would would have done something would have would have put themselves in the line of fire for their family, you know. Um, But I think her interaction with Arnold friend, the way the film and I, I read some of the criticism around it, not like positive criticism is like Arnold friend was this manifestation, I feel like of of. Um, all the things we're talking about with, with with men and women and how women are unfairly put into these situations. But in reality, 
he, the guy's based on a serial killer and this is a person who's deviating from the norm it's never been cool except in ancient times to kill people right uh-huh, uh-huh. so much we have such a such a strong response to that and are so horrified by that but the thing is there is there there is some pr- of this pressure throughout and i think if they had another character that her, she had a, a third hookup or in that second hookup where she's it's like it's escalating right where it's like this symbolism where it's like this is this is the walk of a woman's sexuality and then it gets confronted by some otherworldly thing and granted i i do know i do know uh a, you know one woman in particular who was who had an arnold friend type of situation happen and she escaped but in general that is really rare and but most pretty much every woman i know has had the unfair abrasive pressure and just said yes to something to get it over with do you know what mm. i mean so totally. I, think, I think the 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 movie conflates both those things because um Arnold Friend is an otherworldly evil in my humble opinion like that type of person. Right, right. No, I I mean, yeah, I agree and I think the conflation is definitely like part of it whether that works or not. I do think well it's also interesting because you read that it's a part of our different points of view on it might just be that you read the short story first before seeing the movie and I did the mm. reverse, you know. Um Cause it's also, I mean, the other thing is like the movies, it's not, it, he might not be a serial killer. You know, it's based on a short story that was inspired by a story about a serial killer and in neither the movie nor the story is he a killer that we know, you know? Hmm. Um, That's true. You know, he's got a different name. It's just, you know, maybe he's a Bob Dylan character. <laughs> he's Bob um, D- and he went Bob on D- to this be Bob, is Dylan. Bob Dylan. You know uh, what, you know what detail though, that got dropped in this, the book, uh, the movie too, is the fact that he's, he's really short and stands on crushed up cans and stuff in his boots. Yeah. Yeah. And his makeup, I was going to yeah. say, Although, like, which I, I think is a great decision in the movie. It's, I mean, it's so scary in the, in the short story. I mean, in the real story as well but like the there's the hint that he has the face made up because there's the kind of line and in the movie you do kind of get that sense that he's well manicured and but it's he is a real guy and that's kind of scarier you know like he Mm -hmm. he does feel mythic their encounter feels mythic like you know the mise-en-scene of the scene like kind of totally shifts into something more haunting and it feels like the night of the hunter almost um but his performance, it's all in his performance. And they like, right when he shows up and he's bopping to the music, you're just like, who the, f-? like, this is like the most live wire performance of this guy who's charming and so terrifying. And he'd almost like, I, I like how the, 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 uh, the aesthetic and some of the formal choices seem to like shift around him. Like there's the one shot. So she encounters him barely earlier when she's at the, whatever, the hot dog place, the drive-in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the shot get you yeah oh my god he's so scary uh oh i never connected she directed because the, the main thing i know treat williams from is being the dad on everwood she directed an episode of everwood That's treat funny. williams what a name oh my god he's what an incredible looking guy incredibly handsome and scary in this um but there's the shot uh of really the only shot where we see someone else seeing connie which i think is interesting because she's all about how other people see her but where it's just moving behind his head as he watches her through the frame of the window of the restaurant and it's like totally different aesthetically from the first two-thirds of the movie that kind of mm-hmm. slow tracking behind him and yeah. totally in line with what the movie becomes in the third act um i just thought that was really well done um it's it's certainly well done and i think and i no i think i i think i think you're you're i would 
like give you give you the points on on the debate here but for me it's like i just it's um I just I think I get I get hung up on what I feel is being conflated a little bit, but I do think the blocking and the staging and that you brought up one shot that uh, what was it the her through the door, through the window. Oh, uh, and the last sequence. Yeah, no, yeah, I know you just said through the window, but I thought I was reading your notes before, and you said something about some shot that is, it reminded you of something. Oh, well, the whole last sequence. I don't know. I don't know if this is the case at all. But the the entire Spawn Ranch sequence of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is just feels it, exactly yeah. like this. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's only a screen door between the power dynamics are different in that one, but between Brad Pitt and Dakota Fanning, mm-hmm. just the screen door and him approaching and this like incredibly handsome but somehow scary guy, and he's like he's can get through the screen door, like that's not going to stop him. And there's yeah. even like a very similar shot in in Smooth Talk. It's much scarier, but of of on Laura Dern's face, like nose pressed against up the screen door, and same with Dakota uh, Fanning and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, yeah i wonder if just the blocking and the staging the inc- like every sh- the cut to every new shot in this sequence to me is just like instant chills and scary and mm-hmm. again just takes on a totally different form from the rest of the movie which i get i i understand can also be like maybe that's frustrating too it was just one of those things where i think all i knew about the movie is that it was like coming of age tale that had some crazy element so watching it you're like kind of scared, like, oh, is something bad going to happen? This is like kind of real, but also fun and funny, kind of like a more serious Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Like there's this naturalism mm-hmm. and realism. And then for it to just smash up against this other movie was like so exciting and terrifying to me um, the first no. time I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that is I I hear what you're saying. I guess for me and again, it's like. Uh, um, it, 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 As someone who wants to do these type of things, it's hard to not think about how you would do it but it's like so the it's such a good first two acts for me are so good and then for me it's like they're ignoring this this like the charles schmid character again it's this film is about connie and 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 i don't want to take away or dilute her story but they're ignoring this once in a lifetime character in the back and and but then including him kind of do you know what i mean it's like right so i'm i'm just kind of like this guy was was so creepy and next level like even rare among serial killers and we have him slightly involved and it's kind of i just i just i and there's because there's the movies like how how long is the movie an hour and 24 minutes i think i think it's like yeah not even 90 minutes yeah and i'm like this i'm so into this movie that i just think it could have been two hours maybe over two hours the pacing so well done the cinema the the shots and the editing and the music i'm like there's there's it's such a lean movie and i appreciate that um but i'm like i'm into it so i want more and i want it to be what i think of you know and which isn't fair but i just think I, it I, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, reading the story about the real Charles Smith, it's, there's so much crazy stuff. I mean, again, this is like, I mean, I'm just sure she read it, but who knows if like the if Joyce Chopra and Tom Cole even had the real story in mind at all, or if they were just inspired by the Joyce Carol short story in which like none of that crazy stuff is actually in there, mm-hmm. even though you can connect it. But yeah, Charles Charles Schmidt killed many women that he you know had proposed to or younger girls got involved with the mafia and the fbi was arrested for posing as a federal agent some of that stuff just couldn't help but be funny no his his best friend was just like (laughs) terrified of him and eventually confessed about all of his murders to his grandma his grandma just said 
think you've had too much beer yeah and then he's like the one time i need help you know it's helping me um okay but real on that front though no that's there's there are some details though from that you're like we're 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 in the short story that then not i don't think properly gone into for um i would love to talk about them real quick but um one they did include and i'm curious your thoughts so the the secret code the 33 1917 oh that's on the side of his car you think that's the ages of victims i don't know i didn't know what it was it that's so oh all of it's so scary it really <laughs> the 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 thing that i think could have been pushed further and it's it's so hard because we got like a guy who looks like treat williams is really you know he's very attractive but like a so connie and i've actually been in this situation in a completely different context and i'll explain in a sec but when she slowly is realizing, I think you alluded to this earlier, that he is older than he is, uh-huh. is actually so terrifying. I had a moment where I was uh, ironically called Baby Blue because of the Bob Dylan song. We were, the two of us were trying to get this independent film off the ground. And I was meeting with an actress from uh, my act, an acting class I was in to see if she wanted to play this small role. And she was like excited. And But the first thing she said to me, she's like, do you know how old I am? And then as she said that, I swear I saw her just like age. Cause I thought she was like 28. She was like 42, but she just had a young face and took care of it and probably wore a lot of makeup. And I was like, it was really creepy. Yeah. It's really and interesting then, what you project on someone until, you know, and then I've done that a lot since by accident. Cause I met a lot of my coworkers on zoom, you know, and the people oh, showed totally. her, I looked just different, but uh, okay. Um, but then the, the other thing though, is that they characterize um, they characterize Arnold friend. As, and I think this is a really good nod to Charles Schmid is that he seems cool. Right. But then on second glance, he's fucking creepy. And it's like, like people who are close that said anybody in the, in the article about him, it said that anybody who was still in high school and hanging around thought he was cool. Anybody who had their own life and their own job realized he was total, totally fucking weird. And I think that's like that's so it's such a real thing, by the so way. Real. That. Yeah. Oh my god. And then it reminds me of this fucking thing. And then I have to share this detail from the story before I forget. But there was a guy who was like had some sort of development developmental delay named Nasty Nate, who used to buy alcohol for minors. And um everyone I know really had a some sort, not everyone I know. A handful of people, myself included, had an interaction with Nasty Nate. And then all of a sudden he gets arrested for this, like, I don't know, like five years ago, six years ago. And it was just going, you know, being talked about in all the message boards of like nasty. It's like one Nathan, Nasty Nate, like whatever his last name uh, was finally busted. He was like, you know, now in his 30s, like still hanging around. Again, I think he had um, some other issues that um, were I'm sure were really challenging, but he was he was somebody who was still hanging around the high school crowd in his 30s and then buying them alcohol. But oh, go ahead. No, No. I was said that's a I mean, I'm sure this is what you're getting at, too. That's such an interesting comparison because because I do think this movie does pull off where I'm sure what you're going to say is that he's incredibly handsome and is cool looking. And so, like, you can't deny that on film, and that's kind of different. I do think there's, like, the shift between him being cool and hot and then, like, a second later, mostly just because of the situation and cinematically how it's done. It's like, oh, no, this is creepy and terrifying. But it is funny how, like, this guy, or you think of Wooderson in Days of Confused, who essentially is Nasty Nate, and you're like, in real life, this dude would be disgusting and terrifying, but he's Matthew McConaughey, so he's kind of awesome yeah. and acceptable. So um, we'll, we'll give it to him. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in agreement. Um 
but the thing that I think is this is such a subtle detail. It's it's obviously in one way it's not subtle because it's in all caps, but it I think it's subtle is uh she looked at the name Arnold Friend, and up on the fender was an expression that was familiar. Man the flying saucers. It was an expression kids had used the year before, but didn't use this year. Oh, that and it's really good. Yeah, and it's like this thing is like this guy does not have his finger on the pulse. Like he's like right. he's out of the loop. He's like he has this thing and like the that's the nature of trends it's the nature of youth is that like they're you're onto something new very quickly like when i my students all loved playing among us um and then by the end of christmas break nobody played it again and i was like the first day back i was like why don't we play a game of among us to get warm up and everyone's like yo mister we're on the the something else you know (laughs) right right and it's but like um the thing is and sometimes so psychopaths can can move well socially but most people who are we're very quick to to set people aside who who are not with it, you know. Yeah, it's true. And I I think this was a really good shark fin uh, of like this guy's this guy's he's he's fucking weird. <laughs> no, well, that's why I mean it is you you when you asked uh, what year it's set, my, my reaction at first was like it's set in nineteen eighty five, but then I was like, well, he does seem like he's from the sixties, kind of. He's got this like Elvisy. I mean, in the, in the short story, we know he impersonated Elvis, but in, in this movie, especially, you're like his like sleeves are rolled up in a way that you're like they didn't dress like this in the eighties, and so I wonder if that's like he's a man out of time, or is it just like he what's cool isn't what he thinks cool isn't what's cool anymore. And that's unsettling. It uh, is in such a real high school way of like, that's, an, there's another line. And I think this is so, it was so effective too about, and people forget this. Okay. So kids, adolescents, boys and girls are mean. They're mean. Very. And then the Louis CK says, cause they're trying it out, you know, like <laughs> you, you have to start with being mean and see that it upsets people to like, you know, no, that it doesn't this, work. Right. And there's a line about her going up the escalator with her friends. And it's also heartbreaking. The one friend who's like now getting ostracized. Oh my God. She's, yeah, it's so sad and so real. Um, <laughs> but then in the short story is a line about them going up the escalator. And there's a group of boys who, who aren't very attractive, um, like trying to get their attention and they ignore them. And then the line is, it felt good to ignore them oh jesus she's and such it, an insightful writer it is and it's like it's i just i'm sure boys do that way do that as well but i do think that's something that's like there's when you're a boy this is just me projecting now but there's that it felt like that 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 when people are and are adolescents and girls kind of reveled in that a little definitely yeah and um it was heartbreaking <laughs> you know to be like so much like, this is I'm so invisible. sad yeah, you're right. The, and the girl in the so there are like three or four of these girls who are friends with Connie in the movie, and one of them is kind of less willing to break the rules. Their big thing is lying about going to the movies, and so they have a two-hour window to go do what they're really going to do before they have to be back for their parents picking them up. And one of the girls is less down with that and just stops hanging out with them as much. And her mom's kind of like, "What happened? Like, oh, I saw what's her name. She's your best friend, and doesn't know that they don't even hang out with her anymore." It's so sad. So many real things. There's the opening where they have to they rush back from the beach, which looks like Moonrise Kingdom, by the way. I know oh, it's, it did. Not, yeah. it's northern, it's northern California. But they rush back to the mall in order to be there in time for their mom to pick them up. So they don't she doesn't know where they've been. And they get there and the mom's not even there yet. And it's like, why did we think that was the end of the world? That's just so <laughs> being a kid, especially it before is. cell phones. It is two things on that real quick. I remember last summer and it actually made me really happy. And I think just because I had that a, a one year old at the time. But I heard 
I saw a, a two girls and a boy who looked about eight, nine, and ten um, in Maine, and they were riding their bikes near the house, actually where I'm at now. And they were like, "What?" One of them was like, "Wait, what time is it?" And the other one was like, "Um, uh, it's nine. And then the other one's like, "We're so dead." <laughs> you know, it's just like this. There is a childhood still exists. You know. Yeah. yeah um, that's beautiful. And then this, the second thing is I heard this in the flesh the other day. I forget where it was, but uh, you know, the ending of Moonrise Kingdom where it's going, cuckoo, cuckoo, uh-huh. you know, that's a woodpecker noise. I guess I didn't think about it. I thought it was like yeah. a cuckoo bird. Oh, and now yeah, a cuckoo I was clock. watching uh, Florence. It was so random and adorable. She came out to me with the, with the TV remote and said, show me trees. <laughs> and i just was like put on a youtube video that was like the secret life of trees and there was a woodpecker and it was making that noise over and over again and i was like where have i heard this and it was the ending oh, of that's so funny no i never would have known that and it kind of made me laugh because then there's also like what kind of bird are you it got me on right, this of course kingdom thing about birds and i'm like um anyway but yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay well we're, we're 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 approaching two hours as we we like to have episodes that are longer than the runtime of the film um, we keep the talk smooth that's why it goes so long <laughs> okay and another thing too uh no never mind i was gonna i'm just being a curmudgeon now at this point i'm, Be like, a curmudgeon. I'm just hung up on the fact that treat williams is hot when he's like it's like smooth talk like this guy he undresses her with his creepy like his creepy uh nonchalance when really i'm just like i'm just horrified by that guy and i'm i just wish it would there was more of a exploration of that so we could we could see that this is actually a piece of shit who's deviating from the norm and then have the uh, stuff that's getting conflated have its own arc i just that's just how i would have done it and i it's hard for me to get past it which i don't think is fair but i that's what i think i know what you mean i mean i don't know it's it's hard because like yeah obviously we can't speak to experience i don't know i know guys who were cool and attractive and normal and who are my friends who I've then found out have done what Arnold friend did, not what <laughs> Charles, Charles Schmidt did. did. Yeah. Um, you know, and I like, I don't know. It, I do feel like it's really common. Um, but then it's also like, yeah, like does his attractiveness. Yeah. Is it too much? It's also obviously you're presenting something real in a way that you, you don't have to worry about necessarily in a, a short story. Mm-hmm. um like you have to manifest them in flesh and blood um but it's like him being attractive i don't know does that make it any he can still be a total psycho creep uh, that's true no no and i'm I, i'm we're totally i'm totally being a dead horse and you're you're uh placating it so i appreciate it um what what should we is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched that we should talk about rather than me just say the same thing like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, by the way and i i mean i it's a it's no, no, your your point makes a lot of sense. Um, Thank you. It's just, yeah, the, the family stuff is so, I love the house where it's both big and dilapidated. And I kind of have no idea what their financial situation is in a cool way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff with the sister is so good. There's the long scene before the end where they just talk about, like kind of hash things out. And it's just in these really long two shots and doesn't even cut between two different two shots. It just moves up when they're on her bed, just talking about love and oh it's so tender and then they dance at the end behind all these james dean posters which also feels perfect because it's like that's another guy that tree williams is kind of pretending to be this dead Mm. guy who's a former idea of what's cool 20 you know this is 30 years Mm. whatever after james dean died um 
and that felt really prominent and intentional um well oh oof. the another thing though too i think uh though that scene the initial scene i think you're talking about where they're talking about love mm-hmm. um doesn't uh june get pretty of- offended though doesn't she, she does say, she cuts it off like, halfway yeah she's like you're you think you like deserve everything like you know what you're gonna get it and that's a th- i get and i apologize but that's another thing and I'm, I'm gonna get canceled here but tell you what june can get it she's hot in the movie <laughs> in the book she's supposed to be plain looking works of the high school is 24 and a loser i would i would date that actress very seriously she's very pretty and yeah, i would want to i would want to buy her a house you know what common, i mean <laughs> a common problem with movies yeah yeah the person yeah. who's supposed to be plain and homely you're like you'd be the most attractive person i've ever talked to yeah you um, would literally be that you would literally be the talk of the town that i lived in um and no one would forget you um so that's another thing i think that's but it's funny though and again talk about this male female different pressures the dad is such a weird looking dude and it's weird because he's like conventionally uh you know like like doesn't look that weird but there's something about him the way he talks and looks i'm like i don't know how you're a cast (laughs) yeah it's very strange there are a lot of strange people you know what oh you know what i really loved last thing to touch on in the movie for sure um the opening i mean the opening's great you're like it's this 80s thing but i love that they hitchhike and it mm-hmm. seems normal because of the music, but it's so good, such good foreshadowing where they're like, do you know this guy? And they're like, no. And they just get in and it's like, he could be Arnold friend, you know? And it's, mm-hmm. and it ends fine and everything, but. Uh, he's kind of creepy thought, though too. He is, yeah, he is creepy, creepy looking. Yeah, definitely. And he's older and he's kind of leering, but it's like giggly and fun because that's like what they want. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Did you, did you have a high school spot like the hot dog place that they all go to? Um, we had a couple, it depends. I guess they're more college AG. Um, I feel like I had a couple spots because I was like, I wasn't always on the fringes of being cool. Cause I, right, had, right. I, I was a good athlete. So I was like, if I was invited, I was like the last guy. And I feel like there were places that we, Same. I, I went with my friends instead. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, a couple of pizzerias. There's one that I, I just thought about the other day. I wanted to reach out. I was good friends with this kid, Brian Worcester, who was like super smart guy. And, um, he he was kind of in a similar boat to me and we used to go and you know there's a there's a place called sheets which is kind of like wawa which is a made order food gas station mm-hmm. and we would get sheets pizza and we call it sheetsa and we'd <laughs> yeah. sit there was this really good um it was called the eden which is like a hotel and restaurant but they had these benches and we would sit on the eden bench after parking at sheets with our sheetsa and we would just like eat and talk for hours and that's like uh I feel like a very meaningful thing to me because because I wasn't really cool. <laughs> right, right. I know you mean, yeah, we'd often end up just driving around or going somewhere. But there was a place by our school. Um, Phoenix uh, has just a bunch of like, Filiberto's is kind of like the chain, like fast, real Mexican place. But then there are a bunch of like offshoots that feel related that are kind of the same thing, but with different names like Alibertos, but there's just place of mottos that there were several. Oh, I know mottos. You know mottos? Okay. The more locations than I thought, Um, but there's one, it was right next to my high school and it was open, I assume 24 hours, like most of these places are. And that was like the late night place just because it was was disgusting. Like (laughs) just like huge meals. They were like broke a bunch of health code violations, really good actually. But um, 
it was like no it's good place to be. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. but it, like if you went the late at night there'd be a bunch of people there you'd always hear stories about what happened at amato it's like this one guy i know supposedly knocked out a navy seal he got in a fist <laughs> fight with at amato <laughs> all these stories like that i remember but, and so that scene when they're all there cruising the area and how the young girls go there because that's the place to go it just uh, reminded me of that you know what's funny though about that little tidbit about knocking out a navy seal right <laughs> You think that that'd be a lie, right? That he didn't yeah. knock out the Navy SEAL, but probably the lie is the guy was not a Navy SEAL. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, okay, here, I wanna, I'll want i pick one thing to end on. You pick one thing to end on. So the thing I want to end on is um, I just love this type of – I think this is really hard to do, actually. Um, I've heard before that English uh, professor I had in college, who actually met at my wedding, um, he talked about this, and it's like – an in-world, I don't know if this was, I think this is maybe my phrasing, so I'm going to say it's mine now. But uh, no, the thing he said was, it's 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 um, very easy to write a metaphor. It's in very hard um, to write a good one. And I, th- I have this idea of the in-universe or in-world metaphor, where you're using something from the world you're creating to describe something else. And that's like, it's so hard to do that without seeming redundant or like repetitive or pretentious or something. But here's one, a small one. Um, Joyce Carol Oates has these really long looping sentences that I love that get kind of lyrical. And um, here's a great example, in my opinion, of an in-world metaphor. Everything about her had two sides to it, one for home and one for anywhere that was not home. Her walk, which could be childlike and bobbing or languid enough to make anyone think she was hearing music in her head. Her mouth, which was pale and smirking most of the time, but bright and pink on these evenings out. Her laugh, which was cynical and drawling at home. Ha ha, very funny, but high pitched and nervous anywhere else, like the jingling of the charms on her bracelet. So that sentence is great because it sets up a lot of that duality we talk about. But the comparing her voice to the charms on her bracelet when it's all supposed to be like this innocence and girly and burgeoning sexuality to come i feel like it's like that's it's that's a, a subtle but very effective and good metaphor that's uh, what a great point i never even considered that the idea of the metaphor like the in reality metaphor oh yeah where she that's really good i also wrote down that whole line another oh another thing that i love the uh, that just totally like gets at the uncanny like way that this guy is normal in so many ways but it's so chilling um you know they describe she describes how he is and then she recognized all this and also the sing-song way he talked slightly mocking kidding but serious and a little melancholy and she recognized the way he tapped on one fist against the other in homage to the perpetual music behind him but all these things did not come together <laughs> that's just the <laughs> scariest thing i've ever read and like we all you know you see someone where you're like why they seem not right and it's like these disparate elements of trying to be a person that you're like that doesn't add up and that is setting off every alarm bell it is and it's even more weird um when someone have you ever seen someone it's only happened to me maybe once or twice i can only remember one where someone who's who's fucked up tries to make a preemptive strike that's like oh i'm normal you know what I mean? And you tag you right away. You tag it. You're like this someone, this person is not this is pretending to be normal. I yeah. can't think of an example, but I do. Know I had the weird, weirdest example. Have you been to Rocky Point? Yes. Several times. Did you go when you're in high school? Um, it seemed like the yeah. place to go when you're like 18, 19. It's yeah, it's the Rocky Point's a it's a it's weird. I found a lot of people don't know about it. But to me in Arizona, it's like Mexico. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like where you go. And in, in Phoenix, certainly before 
things shipped a lot. You could get over the border really easily, drive to Rocky Point to Beach Town. I went only with family, like to like a friend's timeshare twice, but it it definitely was like a party place that you could just go to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Corey Corey got us a, a, air, a hotel there for my twenty sixth birthday. Um, and I was when we were doing distance and I, I flew from Chicago to Phoenix and we drove to Rocky Point, Mexico. And we got That's this, nice. we had this really cool room that was very cheap. And then the proprietor of the hotel had one eye and <laughs> she was just like really excited by us, I think, because we were like young and I don't think know if she had much interaction and that many people booked this hotel. And she just was following, she followed us up to her room and then she kept just talking to us and following us around. And like we had, Corey and I hadn't really seen each other. And um, we were totally trying to just like go at it, I think. And um, this woman just did not read it. And at one point, all three of us were in the bathroom and she was oh still talking God. to us about, okay, but she's not the person, but it was, has to be known. It was really funny. And she told us this whole story in the bathroom about how like her people thought she was going to die. And then she lived and she had to cut people out of this hotel. Cause she was telling us like her whole life story when we were in the bathroom and Corey and I are like <laughs> long distance lovers who haven't, <laughs> haven't seen each other forever. And, uh, but anyway, later that night or the next day, I don't remember, but we leave the hotel to go get dinner. Also side point, worst margarita I've ever had in my life was in. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. It was just so sugary. I instantly got a headache. Um, but there was this guy there walk in on the side of the road. Like he's like, you know, when it's like they're a construction site or whatever. And it's like roped. He sees he's in the construction site, and there's a cat in there. And as as soon as we walk past him, I as soon as I tag him in my peripheral vision, he turns to us and yells, "I wasn't doing anything to this cat. It started doing. It just is. It's it's it just is laying there." And I'm like, I 100% didn't notice you. Now I'm 100% positive that you are fucking this cat or like doing something weird with this cat. Like you were totally preemptive, trying to be like, "Don't worry, nothing's going on over here." You would not have said that if something was going on over there. You're in a construction site with a cat, like looking like a dead cat. It was so weird. It is very bizarre. It's really <laughs> funny. And that's the point I wanted to drive home the most with this episode is that this happened to me. He was our Arnold friend. He was our Arnold friend, our Arnold foe. Um, okay. Well, Tanner, once again, you proved to be the more having a more holistic approach. I proved to be the one who's who's shoehorning my opinion in but tell you what i think that's why this works that's our podcast baby no no no. i i i love your point of view on this movie and it was a really fun one to talk about and read i mean i loved reading the short story and and the article as well um really rewarding one it was great all right well um we'll see i think i think our next episode will depends on on timing i'm headed to europe soon um we're releasing this all at a later date so it's moot but maybe maybe we'll be doing brokeback mountain we'll see can't wait (laughs) All right. Later, Tanner. Good to see you. Later, Matt. You too.